when you have somebody who is either discovered in or confesses crimes, they need to be dealt with by the civil magistrate because crimes are crimes. And so when Brian was talking about respecting and submitting to the civil magistrate, that starts with the pastors and the elders. It doesn't start with the individual. The individual is often going to try to escape the civil magistrate by talking to you. And that's why you need to just have this automatic sense in your mind that there's a division of responsibilities that felonies are dealt with by the civil magistrate. Now, I said felonies. I'm not saying that every time you speed, you have to turn yourself in. You know, you you wouldn't make it a block, right? (laughs) But I learned this when I had the pastor of my former church ask me if, if a woman could come and stay with us. And I tell this story a lot, so if you've heard it, I said, sure. And he said, because she's being abused by her husband. Well, I had, I had uh, officiated their marriage ceremony. So I knew the husband, I knew her, we loved them. I said, sure, she can come down here, so we're, what, seven, eight hours away. Then I said, but why is she leaving the house instead of him leaving the house? And he said, well, I don't know, that's a good question. Well, by the time we were done, what was very clear to us is that this woman would not go to the police and would not testify against her husband, would not allow the case to go to trial, and yet that's what needed to, to, ha- to happen. This man had battered his wife, the, the, parent, the father, the mother of his children. He needed the discipline of the civil magistrate. He needed to be punished for this, right? But you know it's impossible. It's impossible to get wives to allow their battering husband to be dealt with. Well, in that case, I learned something, which is what you do is you have the pastor and the elders take the woman in with their wives. The wives are there. They take her in, and they tell her that the elders are requiring her to turn her husband in. Now, that's a whole different ballgame. Now, can you imagine how happy the courts are? Because here's a woman that's going to testify. And man, the man was angry. His Christian Presbyterian parents were angry that the elders and pastors and their wives were standing with his wife and testifying. And it came right down to the court date. And in the court, on one side was this babied man and his parents. Parents don't start, stop babying their children when they get married and have children of their own. And on the other side was the pastor and the elders and their wives and the victim. And when he got up to face the judge, he looked over there and he started crying. And he said, judge, I'm guilty. That's the attitude we need to have. Now, the court's going to fail us a lot. Child protective are going to fail us. The social workers are going to fail to handle these things properly. But don't worry. You do what you're required to do. And what you're required to do is to take them in and to confess their crimes. And every good Christian lawyer will have a fit when you do that. They'll explain to you that the court can't be trusted, that the court just wants as many convictions, that if you don't lawyer up, they're going to go after you and give you the worst possible penalty because it'll make their statistics look good as a DA, as a prosecutor. I can tell you our experience in dealing with this a number of times is that in most of the cases... 
the sentence and the treatment is lighter than it would have been if you'd lawyered up. Now, I'm not going to promise that will happen wherever you are. But when the judge sees a church discipline somebody and love them, they say, this church, and, and it's discipline, it's public discipline. They find out how you discipline. This church and its public discipline is much more effective in keeping this from ever happening again than anything the courts could do. So that's what he meant. Don't lawyer up. Now, there are times where you should have a lawyer. But if you have to get a lawyer, make sure the lawyer is completely sympathetic to what the elders are doing. Before they're hired, make sure they're sympathetic. We have an attorney locally who's sympathetic. Because if you get a lawyer, as soon as they talk to their client, they will not talk to you anymore. And so you're cut out. It's just like taking people to a counselor. The minute they talk to the counselor, you're not involved, even though you stuck them to the counselor. So what we do is we have people that go to a counselor, sign a document that as they start with the counselor, the counselor is told that they say that we can have our questions answered about them as they're in counseling. But remember it, they can sign a disclosure form that allows them to talk to the elders and to their wives about what's going on with them. Now, I'm sure I've created more questions than I've answered by going into that, but I wanted to flesh it out a little bit for you. And this is another thing. When you get into these situations, you do need counsel. And you're not going to get counsel from psychologists and psychiatrists generally. I mean, there are things they can help you with, but the real issues are issues about the leadership of the church. Let's hear from the Word of God. I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 30. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness, the nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside. Their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her. Go ahead, say it. Nakedness. You shall not uncover the... Of your father's sister, she is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the... Of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the... Of your father's brother, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her. You shall not uncover the... Of your brother's wife, it is your brother's... You shall not uncover the... Of a woman and of her daughter... Nor shall you take your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter to uncover her. 
They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not uncover a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these... The nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God." Let's pray. Father, you are our God, and we tremble before you, and we pray that you will restore to us our horror of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know the little ditty? I think it was Alexander Pope who said, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean countenance, M-I-E-N, as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure and then pity, and then embrace. And that's the situation that we live in today. We're so constantly saturated with every form of sexual perversion that we have lost the horror. And so the first thing I want you to notice about this passage of Scripture is, did you notice how often God tells us who He is? It is intense. And what is it put in there for? It's put in there to cause us to tremble and do not sin. We are to tremble at the name of God. There are a few things that I feel like I have a leg up on other people in terms of sensitivity to sin. But one of them, and I'm sure it's a gift of my parents, one of them is, I can't stand the way you tell me jokes about God. You know, somebody did it in the last two days. I don't know who it was, but somebody mentioned Jesus as part of, a humorous anecdote. The name of God is holy. It is almost fine to say the F word, but don't you dare take the name of the Lord God in vain, and don't you get confused about which is worse. When God reveals himself to us, we're to tremble. So that's the first thing to learn here, that you have him saying again and again, I... I am the Lord your God. Now, notice that the thing prohibited again and again in here is 
don't uncover nakedness. And it's helpful. Scripture is so helpful because Scripture isn't squeamish. Scripture isn't Victorian. Scripture isn't... Hebrew is really masculine. And it is unbelievably point-blank, explicit. Hebrew's like that. So, uncover nakedness. And this is a firm anchor for our first thoughts on steps to take to guard against child abuse and incest. We are to guard modesty and we are to cover nakedness. Now, that's helpful. Here's an idea, right? Okay? (laughs) Cover nakedness. Listen, it's that level that people have to be taught at today. And so what does that mean? Well, that means Mary Lee and I had various people live in our homes. Some of them were teenage girls. We thought very carefully about whether that teenage girl would be seductive. Neither they nor our daughters were allowed to appear in our house in their bra or their panties. We have to think this basically, this clearly. You should never have your wife parading around in the house in her bra and panties. Here's an idea. Protect your son. You say, well, my son wouldn't be like that. And I say, you're an idiot. How many times I've had men say to me, well, I could never commit adultery. You know what I do? I just look at them and I say, you are a fool. So you're so much superior to King David, aren't you? Don't ever say you couldn't commit adultery. Well, the same thing is true of incest. And if you do that immediately when you have your first child, you realize that this sin, you are capable of committing it. You're, committing, you're capable of shaking your child until your child dies, and you're capable of sexually molesting your daughter. So, nakedness. You guard the bathroom. You shut the door. So, I'm Howard, who's Elizabeth Elliot's brother, wrote a book called Splendor in the Ordinary about households. It's a wonderful book. And in there, he has like a theological, biblical meditation on the superiority of closing the bathroom door. And that's the kind of thing that Puritans would write. You know, here's an idea. Let's have modesty in our homes. Let's have modesty in our homes. Because if you're modest, then you can hug your daughter and you can lie on the floor during family devotions with each person putting their head on another person's stomach which is what we'd always do, family devotions. I just like touch, you know? So we'd touch each other. We'd lie on the floor and touch each other. But absolute purity. Do you see? Unbelievable freedom in a home that guards modesty and nakedness. First, we are not to uncover nakedness. And so we should take care to guard and protect modesty, and you protect modesty by protecting privacy in your households. Bathroom doors should be shut. Bedroom doors should be shut. When clothes are being changed, your bedroom door should be, I think, locked. I mean, these things are arguable. Go ahead and argue about them. But I think if you're going to make love with your wife, you should have your bedroom door locked. You don't want your children walking in on you. On the other hand, you do want to shove into your children's face your physical intimacy with your wife. But you do that by giving her a hug, tickling her, slapping her on the rear. Uh, I think for us in this church, one of the favorite stories we have of David Carell is him telling us about as his dad was dying, he reached out with his foot and lifted his wife's dress up a little bit and looked at the kids and smiled at them, and he died shortly later. That was one of the last testimonies that he gave to his family. And what a beautiful testimony of a, 
of a guy that's dying who, David, are you okay with me telling that? <laughs> Good. You want to ask afterwards, not before. <laughs> it's a, such an endearing story, and David was so proud of his dad to tell the story. And so, yeah, you, you want to walk the door, but then you also want them to see that there's a sexual energy between you and your wife. Because that creates safety in the house. How many times I've been talking to people in a perverse, a sexually perverse home, and all I can sit there thinking is, well, if the husband and the wife aren't interested in each other, there's no way to help. It's just that basic. There's a reason Paul said, make love, essentially. Have authority over each other's bodies. Be very careful about having your children sleep together. It's very sweet when your children love each other and play with each other and then sleep in, in sleeping bags on the floor with each other. But there's a, there's a point where that needs to stop. And you need to know your children. And you need to know the difference between your children and other children that come over for a sleepover. Sleepovers can be dangerous, so be smart as a serpent. And it's the husband's job to keep his wife somewhere in between smart as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Past two months of age, maybe one month, maybe a week, I really don't believe that any father should be in a, in a shower with his, with, with his children. I just don't think so. Nakedness is sensuous. And so I know there are a number of fathers here who have bathed with their children, but I've heard the stories about how bathing and how other nakedness ends up leading to things that you could never imagine happening. And so again, what... Is it really necessary for you to take your child into the shower with you? Do I have to deal with this again in, in, among us? You know, I'm tired of dealing with the shower and men. I would just say don't do it. Unless maybe you're outside and it's a hose and you have a swimming suit on, then maybe that's okay. Okay, second, notice in this text that what is prohibited is not only sexual relationships, marriage between people who are too close to each other in blood relationship, but also those who are too close to each other in familial relationships. So this is a key thing. What's the big word that it's, that it's called? It begins with a C. Consanguinity. And that's where you're violating the closeness of human relationships you notice that in here, it says in uh, verse 18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as what? As a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. And so it gives you the reason, and this is fascinating. Nobody ever thinks, why is incest wrong? Everybody assumes incest is wrong. Why? Because it, it messes up the gene pool, Right? But do you realize that the minute sensuality is allowed in a home, it makes everybody competitors with everyone? What happens when you bring a woman onto a ship? All of a sudden you have what? Was it 16 or 20 percent in the first Gulf War of the women in the Navy became pregnant? <laughs> and so one of the things we do is we guard the sweetness of a home. We guard the sweetness of a home. How precious is a home? And so what are you willing to do to protect the beauty that God's given you? Hmm? Now, I want to say something here because I just said that we should shut doors when people are changing in bedrooms. And now I want to say, don't ever allow your children to shut their door. 
And it's the same principle, which is that you should be jealous for the commonality of your home. Don't allow your children to do Facebook and chat and, and to be alienated from you. Nobody loves them the way you do. Don't abandon them to some pervert on Facebook. Don't abandon them to their narcissistic vanity. And so in our home, if that door was shut, I was aggressive against that door. I didn't like it when my children, when they began to become teenagers, wanted to shut their doors, and I just let them know, I didn't want, nope, 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 you ain't going to shut your door, you're not going to shut your door, I'm here, I'm your daddy, I want to know where you are. And not because I was thinking that there was going to be sex, it's because I wanted them a part of me. I was jealous for the attention of my children. I was jealous for the proximity of my children. And you think you're a monster. I say, no, I'm just a normal dad, but there aren't any left anymore. Don't you like your children? Come on, tell me the truth. Don't you like your children? Wouldn't you prefer to have your children wanting you to be like where they can yell at you through the door instead of the door shut and they're like talking to people on Facebook? Wouldn't you rather that they had their center of attention, their orientation towards you? Towards your wife? I can remember sitting for hour after hour after hour in the living room listening to my daughter, one of them, not Susie, another one, <laughs> recount every single thing that ever happened in a movie she had just seen. And it boggled my mind, my wife's ability to express interest. I mean, it was like I didn't even have to show interest, and I had tears coming out of my eyes. It went on and on and on. It wasn't interesting in the first place. Why did my wife do that? Well, I will tell you now that my wife is adored by her daughters. Guess what? If you pay attention to your kids, then they want to talk to you. And when they become adults, you'll be their best friend. I remember Rita Cuffey, remember the mother in Israel, saying to me that when she first came to Bloomington, all of the muckety-muck faculty wives would get together for a coffee clash every week, like after Tuesday or Wednesday in the afternoon. And she said she went once. And when she got home, her children had already gotten home from school. And she said, when I saw my children already home from school, I made up my mind I was never going to go back to that group of faculty wives again. I said, why? And she said, well, she said, when your children come home from school, that's when they're ready to talk. If you're not there, then they won't talk to you. And so, listen, close the door to the bathroom, close the door when you're making love, close the door when you're changing, don't, don't have nakedness, don't have immodesty, keep the doors open, both favorites. Bedroom in the basement where, you know, inevitably as they age, they want to go down to the basement, to the bedroom. And we weren't consistent on this. I didn't want them going into the basement. The basement is someplace else. That's not where I am. I want my children where I am because I only get them for a few years. So as much time as I can have my children, I want them where I am. 
God makes you a pig-headed, selfish man for the protection of your children. Honestly, guys, I just wish I could disengage every man alive today from the sense that he's to be a servant leader. Because that servant leadership can corrupt us so that we are suspect of every inclination we have. We get all bollocked up, and our wife is willing to help us get all bollocked up, let me tell you. (laughs) And pretty soon you're not doing anything you should be doing. Your children are given to you. I remember when Taylor was in high school, and Taylor would never smile at me. It just irritated me. And I finally had him stand up one day, and I said, listen, Taylor, I told you to smile, asked you to smile, done everything I can to get you to, to be positive to me. And I'm not, it's not happening. So now let me just be blunt with you. Taylor, I live so that you can be happy. And I do a lot of things during the day that are nasty. I don't enjoy them. I hear stories. I do work that is horrible. When I come home, I want you to look at me and smile. I need your love. I need your gratitude. I need your hugs. I need your smiles. That's what I need. (laughs) You know? You know, what is that? It's a movie. Um, Yeah, what, what is it? Yeah, yeah, I need, I need, I need. You know, and it's so undignified for a father. And how many times I've told men to do that with their children. Your children don't know. You know how your wife, she just is adamant that you should know what she wants without her telling you. Right? How do you like that, men? Work out for you? Right? So why do you think your children are going to give you what you want without you telling them? So make your, make, your, make your household common life. You know what the best indicator is of success in education? Far and away the best. It's the only one they can correlate with anything. Having a common family meal. That's it. So if you want your children to be National Merit Scholars, just have a common family meal. That's it. Fourth, our children must see the sins here in this text that are together called an abomination. Now watch this point. Incest, ceremonial impurity through blood, menstrual, adultery, child sacrifice, abortion, homosexual intercourse, and bestiality. I'm going to go through them again. Number one, incest. Number two, ceremonial impurity through blood. Number three, adultery. Number four, child sacrifice or abortion. Five, homosexual intercourse. Six, bestiality. Now, let me deal with intercourse during the period. You know, if, you've, if you have any desire to witness to the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality as an abomination before God, you know immediately everybody is going to bring up menstrual impurity. This is what everybody does. And so how do you answer that? You don't have to. You can just say, well, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are abrogated. That's it. And they're going to say, what do you mean the ceremonial laws? And you say, well, it it really doesn't matter. The fact is, the fact that that's condemned in a parallel construction with these other sins does not mean these other sins are okay. And I'm not going to bother going deeper into ceremonial impurity, but it's abrogated. They say, well, what does abrogated mean? They say, again, I'm not going to go into it. You don't have to argue on the world's terms. 
You just say 2,000 years of church history have understood that the fact that that one is in this list of six does not mean the, other, the others are, are now okay. That's the f- most foolish thing that anybody could say. And the fact that you have a bunch of friends that think you've made a point means nothing. You, come on, have some dignity with people. Don't, don't let them choose how you argue. You can't do that. Now, will you please notice the other things in this list? The other things in this list are, again, incest, adultery, abortion, homosexual intercourse, and bestiality. They're mentioned in a parallel construction. What's my point? You think I'm going to you think I'm going to make the point what? You think I'm going to make the point that that means homosexuality is wrong. Now, the point is much more intense than that. The point that God's making is that these are equivalent. It is an equivalency of weight of abomination to God when we uncover our relatives' nakedness, when we sacrifice our children to our college degree to the God of the day and there's no bigger God in the Reformed Church than education. We sacrifice our children to Moloch when we what? When we have sex with a goat. Now, why, why am I bringing this up? Well, because, look, next year we're going to talk about this, but let me read to you something that was written by a very, one of the most famous uh, Christian celebrities in our, in our country. He recently repented of denying in the past that there was such a thing as sexual orientation. And he says, now I'm convinced there is sexual orientation. Notice he doesn't say homosexual orientation. He says sexual orientation. Notice also that he doesn't say sexual temptation. He doesn't say homosexual temptation. I used to deny that there was such a thing as homosexual temptation, but now, no, that's not what he says. And listen to him. He says, put simply, most people experiencing a same-sex attraction tell of discovering it within themselves at a very early age, certainly within early puberty. As they experience a sexual attraction or interest simply happens, and they come to know it. The concept of sexual orientation is not only helpful, it's in some sense essential. Even those who argue against its existence have to describe and affirm something tantamount to it. There is a pattern of sexual interest and attraction that's discovered in early adolescence. It is not something that is in itself freely chosen. At the same time, our biblically informed understanding of sexual orientation will chasten us from having any confidence that there is any rescue from same-sex attraction to be found in any secular approach, therapy, or treatment. Christians know that the only remedy for sin is the atonement of Christ and the gift of salvation. The only hopeful answer to sin in any form is the gospel of Christ. Now, listen, am I being snarky? Why? This argument should only be made fun of. It shouldn't be treated seriously. You should make fun of people when they argue this way because they're shameless. They're manipulating you. They're being deceptive. Now, you you say, oh, come on, Tim. You know, get it together. Okay, listen, I'm going to just change a few little words here. Okay, you with me? Fasten your safety belt. Put simply, most people experiencing an animal attraction 
tell of discovering it within themselves at a very early age, certainly within early puberty. As they experience their sexual attraction to sheep and goats simply happens and they come to know it. Are you with me? The concept of a bestiality orientation is not only helpful, it's in some sense essential. Even those who argue against its existence have to describe and affirm something tantamount to it. There is a pattern of interest and attraction to sheep and goats that is discovered in early adolescence. It is not something that is in itself freely chosen. At the same time, our biblically informed understanding of bestiality orientation will chasten us from having any confidence that there is any rescue from a sexual attraction to sheep and goats to be found in any secular approach, therapy, or treatment. Christians know that the only remedy for sin is the atonement of Christ and the gift. The only hopeful answer to sin in any form is the gospel of Christ. Now, you should laugh. It infuriates me. And the reason it infuriates me is because it's a complete abandonment of homosexuals. <laughs> you know, you tell somebody that they have an orientation they didn't freely choose, it just happened, it came to them very early in life. If you read carefully, what is ending up being said is that God gave this to you. But God is disguised under the rubric of nature, orientation. And so what's going on here is, on many levels, exactly what our culture wants. And our culture is okay with us saying that homosexual copulation is wrong as long as we say that homosexual orientation is neutral. And then they'll try to get us on homosexual copulation. But isn't that exactly what is the Pharisees' habit? They always clean the outside of the cup, you know, don't copulate, you know, we have gay Christians, they're gay, but they're Christians, they're, they're celibate, they're gay celibate Christians, they have an orientation, you know, they're, and, and don't give them any sort of secular therapy, it's just the God, you know, do you guys see this? And so this sin list is in parallel construction. Anytime you feel like you're being put in a pressure cooker to, uh, you know, you feel like you're being manipulated on the issue of homosexuality, immediately insert the word bestiality or incest. They both work well. Does that mean that I don't make similar acts of unfaithfulness and deception in the way that I speak and write and preach? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But listen, judgment's to begin in the house of God. If we aren't the pillar and foundation of truth, if we do not expose the ways that we're compromising with the world at the place where the world wants us to compromise, what's the point of believing in the authority of Scripture and trusting the Holy Spirit to sanctify us? Are we the only ones that aren't to be sanctified? So don't be scandalized by me being snarky and making fun of it. How many times have you learned much, much better because you had a teacher or a parent who just was like in your face like this. And you know, listening to me, I'm not being aggressive to you. I assume that many of you think the way he wrote. I'm not thinking he's the only one that thinks that way. Let's allow each other to make fun of us, and it'll shock us, and then we think, yeah, that was pretty bad. It also says that 
verse, verses 3 and 4, you shall not walk in their statutes, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes. And so this text tells us that our children must constantly have set before them by their fathers their choice between the great wickedness of North America and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. So we should constantly be setting in front of our children the choice they have between God's covenant community and North America or the United States, between the flag of the United States and baptism, right? We should always be showing them the choice, always showing our children the choice. This is what God tells them to do here. You shall not walk in their statutes, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes. Our children, six, must understand that God cut off all the men from the land by the flood in the days of Noah. He cut off all the Sodomites from the land in the days of Abraham and Lot. He cut off the Canaanites from their land when the children of Israel entered the promised land. And the Canaanites, God commanded the Israelites to kill the man, woman, child. And why? Well, verse 24, do not defile yourself by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Don't try to cover this up to your kids. Make your kids see that God is judging America, that you love your homeland. And that God is judging it. You cry over it, that God's judging it. And make them see that they have to choose who they will serve. Don't ever try to cloud that to your children. Because seventh, it says, verse 29, for whoever does any of these abominations, now we know the abominations that are being talked about here, right? Whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. And that's, that's such an important point. Your children need to grow up knowing that you won't even flinch from cutting them off from your family and your love if they go to the Canaanites. I think the only people here that are with me now are the ones that don't have children. I don't know how many hours I've spent as a pastor trying to get fathers to cut off their sons. I just never stopped doing it. And I do it, actually, because I love the sons. And I know the son has been deceived by his father into thinking that he can have God and sin. He can have God and abortion. He can have God and fornication. He can have God and adultery. He can have God and all kinds of sins. And the father just continues to just believe the best about the son. And he doesn't give the son the consequences. He's always giving me this story about how this time it's different with him. This time he told me that he's having devotions every day. And for the first time in his life, he's enjoying devotions. You know, and by now the son's 48 years old. We're not to uncover nakedness, number one. We're not just to not uncover nakedness of our blood relations, but also by marriage, by degrees of consanguinity, because we're not supposed to create rivals in the home. The home's to be a sweet place. Third, 
not to make rivals within our homes. So don't uncover nakedness. Don't just do it with your blood relatives, but also sanguinity. Two, third, not to make rivals within our home. Fourth, we ourselves and our children are to associate together and view with the same horror the sins that God associates together and condemns as abominations. Five, our children must constantly be called by us to make their choice between the covenant community, the church, the people of God, and these United States, North America, or the Canaanites. Six, our children must remember God cutting the Canaanites off from their land because of their sins. That's why they were cut off. Seventh, our children must see our resolve to cut them off from us if they give themselves to the practice of the Canaanites. Now, we need, to, we need to bring things to an end. I have a couple of other points I want to make as we come to an end. You remember Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, right? All of you remember Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas did two things which were abominations to God. And God names them. And what are the two things? One of them is that they put their hand in the sacrifice, the offering to the Lord, and pulled out the fat portions, the good meat for themselves. And God was angry that they despised the sanctity of the offerings. And then what was the other thing they did? They lay with the young women of Israel, committed adultery, fornication. And what's fascinating is that the Bible tells us that in 1 Samuel 2, verse 23, that Eli went to Hophni and Phinehas, and he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. You're a dad. What do you think? On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel about Eli's rebuke of his sons? I think it's, if 10's good, I think it's a 9 or 10. He puts the fear of God in them. He warns them. He names the sin, doesn't he? So what do you think? 9 or 10? What's fascinating about this is that then God speaks to Eli. And God says to him, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to the alt- my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the son of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? Are you saying this to Eli? Do you see the problem? What on earth? Eli's kicking against the offering? And then God says this. Why do you kick up my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your fathers should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And so, you know the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is that God kills Hophni and Phinehas. And when Eli hears of their death, he falls off the chair and he dies. Mm Mm-mm. It's not what happened. 
what did happen. Well, I think it's one of the most beautiful statements in the Old Testament because what it actually says in Scripture is that when Eli heard that the ark of God had been captured, he fell to his death. He found out at the same time that his sons died and and that the ark had been captured. And it explicitly says that it was the ark that caused him to fall and he died. And God judges him. Why? Do you have any idea? Why would you say that God judged Eli? Why? You, you, your sense of justice doesn't like it, does it? Doesn't Eli look like a wonderful man? Wouldn't you love to have him as an elder? But he did. We saw him cross his sons. Yeah, he took from the offering. It does say he was heavy. Do you know what I think the answer to this is? And I, What is the theme of this whole conference? The whole conference has been saying to you, you are responsible. You are responsible. You're responsible. Eli was responsible for his son's sin. He was not responsible to rebuke them, was he? What was he really responsible to do with his sons? He was responsible to stop it. To stop it. And he didn't, did he? He didn't stop it. All through your ministry, women, Titus 2 women, men, elders, pastors, all through your ministry, you're going to see things you know need to be stopped. And there are going to be just endless reasons why you don't want to stop them. Eli knew the sin. He rebuked his sons. The rebuke sounds pretty good to me. And God killed his sons, and that was the end of Eli. If you go to the New Testament and you read the story of incest that's in the New Testament, you see that there's a similar situation. And we all remember that it was incest, but what we don't all remember is what the rebuke of the Apostle Paul was of the pastors and elders in Corinth, do we? But that's so important. What he says is, 1 Corinthians 5, the last verse of chapter 4 is, Paul says to them, the Apostle Paul says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Your daddy's coming home. What do you want? It's your choice. And then he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Listen to Calvin on this. He says, those contentions of the Corinthian church that were condemned earlier in the first letter to the Corinthians, you know, they're fighting their contentions, Having originated, as has been observed, in presumption and excessive confidence. Now, is that not the perfect description of the Reformed Church in America today? Presumption and excessive confidence. And so he's been dealing with their presumption and excessive confidence, which all adds up to pride. And he says he, Calvin's talking about Paul, he says the Apostle Paul most appropriately proceeds to mention one of their diseases. And you know what it is, right? 
the knowledge of which should have the effect of humbling them. First of all, he shows them what enormous wickedness it is to allow one of their society to have an illicit connection with his mother-in-law. It was no vague rumor, but a matter well-known and published everywhere so as to cause great scandal. Then he says, from his saying that such a kind of whoredom was not named even among the Gentiles, and making mention of the Gentiles rather than the Jews, he designed rather to heighten the aggravation of the crime. So now here's Calvin heightening the aggravation of the crime. You with me? By pointing out that the Apostle Paul is heightening the aggravation of the crime. And there could not be nothing that is more opposite from our understanding of pastoral ministry today. I don't remember any elders meeting in my life where we sat together and said, you know, we think that we need to heighten the aggravation of this crime. You, says he, permit as though it were a lawful thing an enormity which would not be tolerated even among the Gentiles. Nay, more has always been regarded by them with horror and looked upon as a prodigy of crime. It was held in detestation by the Gentiles as a shameful and abominable monstrosity. For it is a beastly lust which destroys even natural modesty. Should anyone ask, is it just to reproach all with the sin of one individual? I answer that the Corinthians are accused not because one of their number is sin, but because it is stated afterwards, they encourage by connivance a crime that was deserving of the severest punishment. Do you see what Calvin's doing here? Calvin is maximizing, intensifying. He's just blowing this to smithereens. Calvin is telling us that this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. Do you understand this? And once he gets done with the crime itself, then what does he do? He sets off in showing the wickedness of the church at conniving at this sin. And then Calvin says what? Calvin says, nothing is more perfect to get rid of the pride of a church than to shove their face in incest. And then he says that church itself was judged by God by allowing incest to come into it. And he said the whole church should have been grieving because this was a stain on the entire church. It's not just a stain on the people that do it. It's our stain. You know, when you, if you're old enough, you know that you've seen sexual sin in your son and you've thought to yourself, you know that God is judging you through your children. The whole church, says Calvin and the Apostle Paul, is to be ashamed of what's going on in there. I am convinced, and I'm going to end with this, I'm convinced that there is incest and child abuse everywhere in the Reformed Church today. I don't think there is any greater pride in the church today than, the, than Reformed people. And among Reformed, those who have large families, among those that have large families, those that use classical Christian schooling or classical conversation. I mean, we are confident that we are ground zero of the reclamation of everything that's precious in church history. And so what's the antidote? 
what's the antidote? Well, the antidote isn't to stop having children. And the antidote isn't to stop homeschooling or putting them in classical Christian schools. The antidote is for us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Scripture would not command it if it is not possible for us to humble ourselves. Have you ever prayed for humility? How popular is that on your list of prayers that you want to pray? It's not real popular to me because I find that that's one prayer that God really does answer. Love your family. Give yourselves to your children. Be the head of your home so that everybody knows that they're there to honor your God. Humble yourself. And then finally, the message of everything here is there are no experts. You are the expert. No, you've never done it before. Now you're going to do it. Because you're going to do it, you're the expert. Do it. If you need help, there are a lot of people here you can call and help. We all spend a lot of time doing this. Don't go and find incest under every rock when you leave here. But basically, it will probably find you. And remember that the danger to your children and the children of your church is not stranger danger. It's their father. It's their mother. It's their brother. It's their sister. The worst case we've ever dealt with, the worst perp in the home was the oldest daughter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you give us work to do and that it's plain what needs to be done. We pray that you will give us faith to do it. And Father, I pray that our homes will be protected. That you will make us as husbands pure, that we will not look at naked flesh in the world or on our computers or screens. We pray that when we do, our wives will catch us. We pray that you will protect our wives from bitterness. We pray that you will help them to love us despite our sins. And we pray that our children will love their fathers and mothers and honor them into their old age. Protect our children, Father. Protect the children of our churches. Heal those who have committed these terrible sins. Bring them repentance and those that have been sinned against, Lord. We pray that you will comfort their hearts and that they will be loved tenderly in our churches, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.